Welcome to Fashion Your Seatbelt, your first class seat to one-on-one conversations with the fashion industry's top voices. I'm Jessica Michaud, and I created this podcast to share the joy I have in getting to know all the amazing people who bring this creative, inventive, and extraordinary business to life. You'll get to hear the cadence of their voices, the sound of their laughter, and feel firsthand how passionate they are about what they do. Also, I just want to remind you to leave a review. Stars are really trending right now, and it helps other very stylish listeners like yourself find the show. Now buckle up, and let's get started. Guillaume Delacroix is a luxury brand whisperer. His entire career, from his early days working at Carla Otto and KCD, to his time at Giorgio Armani and Balenciaga, to his current role as the founder and CEO of Dialix, he has been helping leading prestige companies craft their narratives in a way that sparks conversations, engages the public, and creates lasting impressions. Guillaume launched Dialix nine years ago, and since then he has built up a reputation in the industry for both spotting and supporting budding designer talents, but also for helping more established companies create bold new chapters in their brand strategy. A born storyteller, Guillaume doesn't just limit his clientele to fashion labels, but instead uses his skills to create memorable moments with a variety of companies. He has worked with everyone from Matches and the famed Saint-Maritain department store in Paris, hot niche brands like Sophie Carbonati Skincare, the Zurich-based On athleticwear label, and the current must-have swimwear brand Hungza G. The common denominator across all of these companies is that they are cool. And if they weren't cool, by the time that Guillaume has worked his magic on their brand strategy, their communication rollout, and event activations, well, they damn sure will be. I have known Guillaume for years, and considering his impressive track record in the luxury space, what still strikes me the most about him is how humble and self-effacing he is. I mean, just Google the guy. For someone who can weave a brand narrative like nobody's business, there is very little about Guillaume himself online. And I hope, in the end, that this podcast will help change that, as he is one man worth knowing. Guillaume, I am so excited to finally sit down and do this podcast with you. I've been wanting to do it for years. Hi, Jessica. Thank you so much. Yeah, indeed. We've been speaking about this for a long time. (laughs) So I want to start, as I always do, with the origin story at the beginning. From what I understand on the research I've done with you, fashion was not, like me, wasn't like a thing that you grew up wanting to do being in this industry. Well, I mean... it was always like somewhere in the background and I was always sensible to that industry. Uh, but obviously like I grew up studying uh, art history and at the end of the day, it's just like that first work experience that defines the rest of your life, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, my first experience was actually, I was an intern at Carla Otto and I remember, you know, attending the Victor, Victor and Rolf show where they released uh, Firebomb, the perfume. And it was just like such a huge show, huge production that I just realized that if, if I ever stopped working in that industry, I just felt like I would fall off the face of the earth, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I sort of got hooked and, and never left. So you interned at Carla Otto. I believe you also worked at Fendi, but you said you had an art history background. I know a lot of people who are going into the fashion industry or would like to go into the fashion industry and intern. What's the kind of the the key? Do you have to have a multicultural background? I mean, what is the kind of way to get yourself? No, I mean, again, I mean, 
according to me, the only reason, the only way to make it is to work and to work hard and to merit your your place you know obviously it's i mean it's not hard to get into the industry if you if you're just looking for an internship it's harder to get into the industry if you want it to be your life and if you want to find an actual job and live from it you know uh but i think perseverance and just merit and just working hard is um essential to sort of proving um, your peers and, and also your superiors and just like everyone that you deserve to be part of it, you know, and that you can assume the responsibilities. So yeah, because the thing is like the fashion industry has such a culturally specific that you can just learn from working experience rather than to, I actually, and I, and I shouldn't say this, but it's just like what, what people teach you in school is it has nothing to do with, you know, what you're actually going to Uh, find on your first day at an internship at a PR agency. So it's just better to get hit the ground running and start as soon as you can. No, I I, I feel like the saying the same thing. My my uh, education, my degree in political science has served me very little. Well, there is politics and fashion, but but you know that's that's true. The the real the real uh, learning was boots on the ground with Susie. So I absolutely agree with you as far as that's concerned. So I, you're you did an internship with with uh, Carla Otto's team, and then I know you did an internship with Fendi, so in house. And so it's it's got to be interesting to do. What's the difference between working in house as as opposed to working with multi brand? Um, well, I mean, when 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 you're in house, obviously you get to do um, you, you're across several things, and you're able to you know, start a project and, and go really from the original idea to the actual execution. Mm -hmm. I feel like maybe um, when you're at an entry level or just like regular level in a multi-brand PR agency, you sort of intervene at a very specific point and you, you don't get to witness, you know, how that project actually started and, and what is actually the end result for uh, the company, for the customer and for all of those things. So that's really the main Point. Although um, when, when you reach a certain level um, in a multi-brand agency, you, you start to get involved in, in those projects as well. And more and more nowadays, uh, our clients actually ask us to bring them these ideas and these projects and to sort of birth and, and be creative and to just bring them those opportunities. So that's maybe something that also has changed in, in the PR world between you know, um, the early uh, 2000 and, and today. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, we definitely want to break into the how much the, the PR field has changed because it's, it's, I feel like it's in the throes of what we were doing in, you know, the written word and in, in the, in the journalism about a decade yeah. or 15, you know, 15 years ago. So I think you guys are really in the, in the mix of that. After uh, interning at, at Carla Otto and then Fendi, you got another internship at uh, KCD and this had more of a longevity to it. You were there for a longer time. Talk about what that was like and you have to tell me what it was like working with Ed. So yeah, I, I started at um, KCD as an intern as well. And it, it just so happened that uh, that's when they had just signed uh, Balmain. So um obviously Bama was about to explode and, and become what it is today and uh, I was very lucky to have Champy D take me under his wing and just offer me my first actual job you know and I stayed there for six years and I worked from Christophe de Carnin's second collection until Olivier's second collection mm -hmm. and at that point I just felt like you know I, I had gone full circle I had witnessed the like the, um, the, the, the explosion of a brand globally, because when I started, when we started working 
for Barman, they only had like about 30 employees and I would, you know, go and, and pack the, the dresses for um, Madonna and Beyonce in the office of the CEO. So it was just like super, super tiny. And then back in the days, it was called Barmania started and all the celebrities started wearing it. And then Christophe left. And so the house went into a bit of a difficult two seasons. And then Olivier arrived. I mean, he was already there, but took over. And then it, it, it just like really became what it is today. So, you know, I just felt like my contribution from maybe was had reached its, you know, end. And that's where I moved on, you know, but obviously, uh, and, I, and I say it every day, like I owe everything to what I learned at KCB. And um, just Ed and his vision of how we're supposed to do our work. And it's essential to who we are today. Now, I'm not saying that, I mean, starting our own company with Wasim Saliba, it did allow us to change a few things, but um, at heart, uh, everything that we do and, and all the values that we have today are really from just him and his personality and just how, you know, it was always about doing your best like your best and doing everything uh in your power to make it happen and if you didn't it was okay because you knew you had done everything in your power to do it you know mm -hmm. um so that's it's really exceptional and i think it just in general i i'm so lucky to have worked with um a few people in, in this industry that just really uh allow me to be where i am today and to do what i am what i do today so, and, and so, oh, the, sorry, the second thing that was interesting about KCD is that obviously you work across several clients. Now, Bauman was my main account, but I also at the same time worked for Gap. Mm. And so you had like such a huge, um, you know, uh, variety of publics that you needed to talk to. And I think that's something that really enriched my just uh, experience and re relationships globally. Yeah, because Gap is so mass and Bauman is so high end that you're really getting exactly. the whole span of of yeah. the touch points. Okay, but that is a pretty cool space to be living in. You're at, you know, one of the top, you know, PR agencies in the world. It's a global PR agency. You're getting to do all kinds of creative, great things. You've been there for, you You mentioned like six years. So you're, you're well in, in established. People know you. You've got a brand behind you that, you know, gives you kind of weight in the world. I mean, I remember that with Susie. You know, there is a power to the name, the International Herald Tribune or that association. What was the defining factor what made you decide because it's very hard as they say sometimes the velvet coffin it's so perfect what you're living in what made you say okay is absolutely glamorous and wonderful as my life is it's creative it's it's enticing why am I going to you know step away from this what made what was that declic as they say in French I mean I, I think like the the I mean it's not a motivation per se but what has driven me in general um in my career if you can call it that is just like when you reach a place of comfort, it's it's over, you know, because you start being uh, working less hard and and you start making less efforts. And so, as soon as I had reached that level, in general, in every one of my jobs, I just I just thought, you know, it was better to move on because I was too young to be in a position where you where you start to get used to your comfort until this day, you know, it's something that and that's something that changed when I start when we started the company is because now that it's my own company, you never reach that place because <laughs> there's always something to do. And um, I, yeah, and in that sense, I, I think I, I just found some sort of equilibrium, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I know you, you didn't go by yourself. Wasim went with you. So, you know, you had somebody, you know, together into the, into the brink, right? So I, I, was that, 
was that important to you that you have, you know, that a partner in that way, you know, somebody to lean on, but also, I don't know, did you have clients that you had lined up? I mean, was there a whole strategy or did you, before you walked out the door? Well, I mean, let, let, let's just start by saying that I would have never done it on my own. So the whole reason why um, I had the courage to say yes to this person that came to us is because Wasim um, agreed, you know, to start the company with me. And uh, how it started is actually, uh, Jess Christie, who um, I had been working with, she was um, head of PR at Gap, so back at uh, KCD. Um, she came to me and she said, well, you know, we're going to launch. She had moved to Matches Fashion and she came to me, I think, in uh, September uh, 2014, actually. And she said, we're coming to France with Matches Fashion. Um, now, back in 2014, no one really knew what online retail platforms were. It was not uh, cool in France. It was so not cool. It was, I mean, I'm American, so I got it, but boy, around me, there was a lot of reaction to it. Yeah. And they were like, who, who, people don't understand who we are, or what we do. So we're looking for someone that can put together a, a, um, a strategy that's not, you know, sort of what the big agencies copy and paste the same strategies. We need something that's much more, you know, made to measure because we're like uh, basically a UFO for French people. So would you be open to doing that? And again, like at that point I was at Balenciaga and Balenciaga is, was really like one of the best experiences, but again, it's like everything comes to you. You don't really have to make any effort. And so I said, yes. And she's like, well, we actually need you to start in January. And this was September. And in France, you have like sort of a three months leave period. And I just told Jess, I'm like, but do you understand that if I do this, I need to quit tomorrow? And she said, well, you know what you have to do. And so the next day- And, and I you're quit quitting and you're not negotiating. Because in France, again, you kind of spell this out for people who are listening. In France, you can negotiate your departure and you can get a, a package deal and you can leave. But quitting, it's like radical. Well, and, and um, I think I can say this today, but I actually put in my resignation at Balenciaga um, two months and 28 days before the actual show. And so I kind of thought that they would be, um, you know, more or less obliged to work with me as a freelance for them. So that's why when we opened DLX, we had Matches Fashion and Balenciaga as a client for a year because we continued to do all their fashion shows and all their events for a year after I left, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that was kind of a strategic thing from me, but um, obviously when we, uh, and so I finished at Balenciaga on February 24th, 2015. Balenciaga? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and we started the company, we opened it on February 25th, so the next day. And yeah, and, and people just thought we were crazy, you know, because uh, people didn't really know matches and I was leaving Balenciaga uh, yeah. for matches and they were like, you are out of your freaking mind. <laughs> I, I can tell, you know, today, looking back, this was 2015, I, I think there are no regrets, but um, it's very different to, like you were, said, Balenciaga or KCD, it's, you're always in the, in the bubble, this is you out on your own, can you talk to me about the leadership skills that you need to start your own business, to run a business in France, because it's a different animal in and of itself, what, it, what are the things, the skills that you need to have, what are the, well, the things that you learned on the way? I mean, l let me tell you, I... The skills, I had none, and I think I still think I don't have that many. And, and we were really going into this not knowing really a single, single thing about what it was to launch your company. So I, I think we just uh, went ahead with our instinct and, and with our uh, just willpower and just uh, 
you know, work ethics basically. And, and I think we just concentrated on working hard and not really looking left or right uh, or mm -hmm. at what people were saying. And we just uh, really tried hard to deliver uh, good results for our clients. And, and, and that's actually what happened, you know? And, and I say now today, looking back, it, it was an, an actual huge sacrifice because when you start your own company in terms of just, um, uh, you know, your life uh, next to that, uh, you know, your um, social life, your um, uh, emotional life and all those things, they sort of, I mean, they don't sort of, they really do take, uh, you know, you really put them aside for, for yeah. a while. So looking back, that was like kind of a, um, a bit difficult, but obviously, as you said, there's absolutely no regrets. And, and today we're sort of just starting to, you know, see, um, everything come to fruition. So there you go. Well, I want to ask you, cause this is something I ask pretty much everybody I speak to. Can you talk to me, um, about your time, you know, running your own company where you maybe made a, a misstep or a mistake or let's call it a learning experience, you know, that you were able to pull from and kind of switch your behavior or redirect things. I just, I think it's important that people learn from, you know, choices that weren't the correct choices and how you grow from that experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the first thing that comes to mind is really how envision my relationship with my employees. Hmm. Um, and because as you said, you know, we, we really had no experience and, and it, it sort of developed really quickly. And so at the beginning, I wrongfully thought that my employees were my friends, you know? Mm -hmm. And so looking back, it was so naive, but that's also how we've been doing this whole thing is just going at it with how we feel as humans, you know? Um, and then when people would eventually leave the company, I would just, it would, it would break my heart and I would take it so per personally, but that's just life, you know? And, and I think I, I learned a lot from it and things have changed today in a sense that, and also, you know, I mean, now it just, sometimes it still breaks my heart because, you know, the team, they do parties and stuff and I'm not invited, but of course, because who would want to invite you? Have the boss. There you go. But I'm just like, guys, come on, you know? <laughs> I'm cool, um, I promise. Yeah. I won't um, tell the boss what happens at the party. There you go. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, but I think that's the main thing that, um, that, you know, because at the end of the day, we, things that happen and, and, and it's just like, uh, they're all, of course, they're all learning experiences, but, you know, so sometimes we, we take on clients because we feel they're interesting and because I'm not going to lie, you know, financially it's great. And, and then maybe like uh, one year later, we just say, listen, we're, we're not a fit. And, and I think uh, we don't have the same values. So we're just gonna stop working together. And, and that's something else, you know, when it doesn't work, just don't force your team to uh, work in an environment that's not, you know, mentally positive. And if there's like tensions with the client for the wrong reasons, because, you know, sometimes maybe we'll be late in sending something and that's on us, you know? Uh, but if there's just like an unhealthy working relation with a client, we just prefer to end it now. Whereas mm -hmm. maybe two, two or three years ago, we would just would do absolutely whatever it took to keep You'd them. Suffer through. Yeah. yeah. So now that you're getting to a point, like you said, where there's a certain comfort level at the company, where you're, you maybe pick and choose isn't the right word, but that you're able to be more discerning with your clientele. Are you, are you going in a specific direction? I mean, I know some brands are like, we're going really sustainable, or some people are really like, we want more diversity, or, or is it more the personality of the design? I'm curious to know what your kind of selection process is now that you can be more selective. What motivates us today, it's really to defend um, 
subjects that are uh, at the forefront of societal changes. We're just trying to really like have those subjects that are interesting beyond, you know, selling a, a bag or a dress. Well, let's talk about that because I mean, there the like we were talking. Let's talk about the actual evolution of of what you do because we've spoken on panels together before where we're talking about the whole aspect of the the creator community online, the influencer. Let's oh, then there's the the traditional media, the the editors and chiefs, etc. And then you know uh, perhaps maybe there's a whole other kettle of fish that I don't even know about, but I'm curious to see like, what are the buckets that you're focused on now for the storytelling you want to do for the brands that you're representing? I mean, um, it's still pretty much the same. And, and I think, uh, again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier is that um, the uh, media, so we, we talk about media. Media comes from the Latin word medium, which is like a vehicle for information. Uh, so when you have that in mind, whether you're a print magazine or an Instagram account or whatever else, you are a vehicle to, you know, put out an information to an audience. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think it's really the same. It's like a, a, a print article is still as important as an Instagram post, but it's just about the worth of the actual media. Mm -hmm. And I think we've seen that over the past year where you have some magazines that stop editing and it's just like everyone has concentrated on putting out something that's better, a magazine that is better, a content that is better, um, um, and things that make sense, you know, and that's how there's more worth and what you do is much more efficient. So it's still the same, like uh, uh, it's still as important to get, you know, the two, three page feature in, in M. Le Monde, for example, as it is to uh, get your product on that person or that person. It just matters if that person is relevant and if uh, her audience thinks she's honest, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about the experiential side? Because I feel like, well, two things. One is I want to talk about data and I want to talk about experience because I feel like that even more now than ever, you know, being able to track the value of online or with influencers and stuff like that. And the data is going to be even more interesting for brands than, you know, not knowing if this advertisement in this magazine actually sold any bags. I think that that is a real change in the industry. But I also think that people are going to be desperate to have more experiences. What are your clients saying to you in relationship to all of that? I, I mean, for sure. So the, the experience part of, of our, our company is really what has quadrupled in terms of uh, just uh, time and effort our client asks us to spend on, brands are spending much more, more money into delivering experiences for the end consumer. Mm -hmm. So what does that say about the media? So for the vehicles, that's something else. But, you know, they're actually, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how how it transforms once again the the media because we've already seen different you know journalists become influencers or you know try and brand themselves something that that wasn't a thing in the past. It's a very Absolutely. very different uh, change of strategy for a lot of journalists, myself included. I do have to ask you because you talked about how you you pushed everything aside, you know, you're pushing your company, you know, getting it off the ground, you know, day in day out, twenty four seven, three sixty five. I feel like you have other, you know, centers of interest, and I've been fascinated to watch you, you know, reconstruct and do interior design. But I, I you know, but am I overstepping and thinking that that's a passion of yours? No, for sure. And and um, growing up, I, I really had two passions. It was fashion shows and interior design and decoration. And sometimes my parents would leave for the weekend, and they would uh, come back on Sunday evening and found that there 
entire house had been, you know, reshuffled and, and the, the, the sofas had moved to another room and stuff like that. So that was me. Obviously, I, I really focused on, on the company and on, on just building that platform. What does that interior design and, and reconstruction and, you know, creating spaces, what itch does that scratch for you? What is, how does that soothe your mind or whatever? What does it give you? I think what I've learned from all these years is that uh, people aspire to is a lifestyle. And what makes someone buy a Gucci bag or Balenciaga shoes, it's not, it's not really what it looks like, it's what it means. You know what I mean? I just feel like, obviously, I've been working in this industry for 15 years, and uh, I just think the defin definition of the world luxury has really changed. You know, according to me now, luxury, it's time, it's space, it's uh, silence, it's light, you know? So, and I just think like, Obviously, the whole world is, is, is so um, educated now in luxury uh, because of, all of the major, you know, luxury groups have, you know, massively educated them through campaigns and through social media that I just feel, you know, now it's easy to get, I don't know, uh, a Chloe dress delivered no matter where you are in the world. The only thing that you cannot get delivered in Paris is the Great Wall of China or the Sydney Opera House or those things, you know? So yeah, I just think there's there's really a shift and um, that's what I want to explore basically. Yeah, I think that, like you said, it's the the experience itself. It's the memory that you can't take away, you know? And, and the piece of clothing becomes a, a souvenir of that memory of that moment. I mean, yeah. that's the reason why I bought a Dries Van Noten skirt from the collection when I watched it walk across the table in front of me for his 50th show. I mean, there that's those are the pieces that I buy, put up on my wall. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let me ask you my five generic fashion questions because I, I, I'm very curious to see and so we can wrap this up. Unless there's anything else you want to share, I'm happy to, to listen to anything else you no, want no, to No, 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 this is great. This is okay, great. all right, here we go. So what is your favorite piece of clothing that you own personally, like that you love above all others, that you would take if the house was burning down, you would grab that piece? It's a, it's a Gap t-shirt I've, I've had for 12 years. A Gap t-shirt? Yes. Okay, you got to unpack that for me because there's got, is it, what's behind this Gap t-shirt? It's, is it a white t-shirt? What is it? I mean, it is a white t-shirt. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually a, a white t-shirt. It was a collaboration with Pharrell. And I just, don't, I don't know. It's like, if I, if you tell me like, what's the one thing I, I, I'm actually not really a clothes person and I, I, I'm very lucky to, to have uh, everything I want, but it's just like, it, 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 it's that or something I bought, I would have, I, I would have found in a vintage shop in Los Angeles, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, but it's mm -hmm. really like. But is it, is it a sentimental value? Is that what it is? Because you were at the Gap and you were there and you saw Feral or I'm just curious. It's just because it, it's like an example of how you can uh, keep an item for over 10 years and, and uh, you don't need to buy 400 t-shirts and you just get one and if it's the right one, it's the right one, you know. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that that's another thing. If you're talking about millennials and, and Gen Zs, it's it's hopefully this the less consumption, a better consumption. I think that- There you go. That's what I meant to say. Well, you nailed it. Um, okay. So you were talking about before, you know, vintage pieces and, and for a lot of people buying a designer piece is a real investment. It takes a lot of time to save up for a, a particular piece. If if you were to recommend to someone if to really invest in one garment, you know, what would that be? Uh, in my case, it's a Celine jacket, which when I bought it, I was like, well, that will have to last me about 50 years. 
sometimes they do. I have some Hermes pieces that I bought, you know, in the press sale like 15, 15, 20 years ago that are still rocking yeah, it today. I hope so. I'm really counting on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so this is a recent purchase. Okay. But yeah. so like a, a, like a great cut blazer, you would say is like a really good investment piece. Yeah. Very timeless and, and great cut blazer. Okay. Who is your favorite designer, living or dead? Wow. Uh, that is an interesting and tricky question. Hmm. Wow, I should have thought of that one. I should have. I'm. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say Alexander McQueen. Why? Why Lee? Because I was very lucky to attend his shows at KCD, and I uh, there's just uh, no one else like him. You know, every time it was uh, more than an experience. It was a different world, and it just he was, you know, making you think of things in a different way, and way before everybody else, you know, touched on those points and. I was, you know, saying earlier how, you know, shows made you cry. And there, I think there's not a single McQueen show where I did not cry. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Those shows, it was an honor to attend each and every one of those. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. What trend will you never follow? Whoa, Crocs. <laughs> really? Not even Balenciaga Crocs? No, not at all. Never. <laughs> okay. All right. Deal. And then the last question I have for you is what do you love most about fashion? Um, I just love the creativity and, and uh, again, it's just like meeting new designers and, and just like uh, uh, hearing what, uh, according to them, is, you know, what matters to them and, and just seeing how they will make this industry go forward. Hmm. Guillaume, it's always so fun to talk to you. I'm so excited that we got to do this on tape so that other people can experience your, your you. little nuggets of wisdom. It's been mm -hmm. wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. My great pleasure. It was great to, to speak with you, Jessica. Don't want to miss an episode of Fashion Your Seatbelt? No problem. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and click on the subscribe button. Then every new episode will drop into your feed automatically. No fuss, no muss. Believe me, I know. I'm Jessica Michaud.